So in today's Daily Sire, I have Tim Medin. He's the principal consultant at Red Siege. And we're we'll going to be talking about a whole bunch of things about penetration testing, kind of the industry, what's going on in cybersecurity. So I'm really excited about this. So let's hack at it. So, hey, Tim, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, this is an amazing just uh, opportunity to speak to you because I know you're an expert in the field and you've been in the industry for quite some time. What, it was about five, 10 years or longer? Um, yeah, a little bit longer. I mean, I think I've been doing pen testing for about, man, I should have done the math beforehand. Like that's like <laughs> the one softball question that I guarantee I'm going to get up front and I never do the math. Uh, I think that's about right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I say a little over a decade, maybe in the pen testing and then IT and some control systems and programming before that. Awesome. Now, what caught you into like cybersecurity pen testing? Like, why didn't you go into compliance, you know, managerial? Yeah, well, I mean, I have my own company now, so they're sort of a little bit managerial, right? But yeah. the compliance side, that just wasn't up my alley. I was doing um, system administration and, and networking prior to going into that to security. And I was like, well, this security seems like a fun thing. I didn't know this was really a job. And then I didn't even know that pen testing was a job. I'm like, wait, you can get paid to do things that people get arrested for? I was like, hell yeah, I'll just sign me up. So just kind of decided that's where I was going to, uh, to make a change and focus on my career on, you know, off, all things offensive. Okay. So now before, were you doing more kind of the defensive side, like blue team as they call them? setting, you know, servers up, router switches, kind of the network, the infrastructure, you know, previously, which gave you a little bit more insight? Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, at a financial institution in the north, uh, northern part of the U.S., mid in the Midwest. And um, I was a, I was hired as a network and systems engineer. So okay. I was administering the systems, doing uh, the networking gear, Cisco kind of stuff. Um, I mean, frankly, I love networking. I just... The soul-sucking piece with networking is troubleshooting latency problems. It makes okay, you want to yeah. jump off a bridge, right? And then, <laughs> okay. the, uh, the, that, that of course, you get phone calls at 3 in the morning because some system went offline. It never happens, you know, about 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. It's always, right. you know, Friday night at 2 a.m. or something like that. Uh, no, but, but seriously, that, that was my background. And I got in, I was interested in security. There was, they were having a number of initiatives uh, surrounding that. I'm like, you know what, this is something I'm interested in. So I ended up picking up a lot of the sort of internal security related projects and just took them on. I'm like, Hey, can I do that one? Can I do that one? Can I do that one? And then spent a bunch of time myself um, reading and blogging and learning uh, about security uh, and then sort of pivoted my role internally from the networking and system administration into uh, security. Uh, and then from there, moved on to uh, consultancy doing pen testing. Oh, wow. Okay. That's actually pretty cool. Cause I mean, you hear it time and time again now, I'm sure you get this too. There's a lot of people transitioning from whatever job that may be. Some people even outside of IT are transitioning, going to cybersecurity. And a lot of people are looking at pen testing because I think it's the hottest thing in the market in the sense of marketing. And you see it like on conferences, everyone's talking about pen testing, pen testing, you know, vulnerability assessments and pen testing. So it's interesting to hear like, you know, from your perspective, how you change and transition from being kind of on the IT blue team side, you know, configuring, setting things up and then transitioning over to the red team kind of pen, uh, pen testing. 
Yeah, and it really helps to have that background. Um, if you can understand how to configure some of those systems, you can understand a little bit how to sort of use and abuse and break those systems. Um, okay. One piece that I find tremendously valuable is um, I was a network engineer, right? So I did a bunch of, of Cisco networking routers, switches. So if on a, a pen test or a red team, we have access to the networking gear, I can do a lot of fun things in there, right? It, right. And it's, I sort of liken it not to sort of get ego maniacal or anything crazy, but like getting into the matrix itself, right? Because, okay. you know, on your typical, your typical environment, you've got the network is defined by the, well, the network admins, right? And the right. network is sort of like a series of roads. And the roads are defined by them. And to get from point A to point B, you have to take the roads as defined by the network admins. Mm-hmm. When you can get into the networking gear, you can sort of make your own roads, if you will. And now you can start bypassing some of the defensive technologies. Um, so maybe bypass the IPS or IDS or firewall or whatever it might be. And, you know, become a little bit quieter. Uh, you can also use, there's really cool things you can use to use the networking gear itself kind of as a, as a pivot, a way to get deeper into the network um, that isn't typically logged the same way as uh, Windows hosts are. Okay. So, kind of fun stuff. So yeah, as you're going through, I mean, you, I'm sure as a pen tester, and let's talk about like, what is pen testing? You know, if we're going to define it, you know, if you were going to say, okay, pen testing is this, what would that be? Yeah, so... Um, the sort of simple thing that, that I get this from, uh, from Ed Scotus from a class many moons ago, um, but the goal of a pen tester is to model re- a real world attacker um, with sort of the goal of what that would attacker have to demonstrate the business risk, right? Okay. And the key here is to model the real world bad guy. Real world bad guys are going to take systems offline if need be. At right. no point in time am I going to intentionally take down a system um, without some sort of approval. And frankly, I'll probably never get that kind of an approval, right? right. A real world bad guy would happily ransomware um, your entire everything. Right. I, of course, can never do that, right? So there's this modeling aspect. Also, as part of that, a kind of an efficiency gain, we're going to talk to the, the teams inside to make this go a little bit faster. Because, uh-huh. you know, your, your, your real bad guy might spend weeks, months, frankly, years trying to get into these networks. And realistically, people aren't going to write a contract for that, right? right? So we have to have some efficiency gains as, as kind of a trade-off here to find those vulnerabilities, ultimately, ideally, before the bad guys do. Okay. Of course, the key is always, how do these, biz- how do these vulnerabilities relate to the business? Because these vulnerabilities don't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Right. We've got to tie it back to the business. Why do I care about this vulnerability and patching it? Well, it's because it allows access to your sensitive information, right? Your secret formula for Coke um, or your credit card numbers or healthcare information, whatever your organization does. If we can frame those vulnerabilities around that data, it helps us understand the true risk of that vulnerability. Whereas with a, a VA, I mean, you can get some of this picture as well. Because if you find a vulnerability, VA meaning vulnerability assessment, yep. um, if we find a vulnerability on some sort of critical system, you can kind of tie that together. But one of the things we do with pen testing is we put multiple pieces together, right? right? So I'm going to take maybe vulnerability A, combine it with B and C to develop some sort of exploit or lateral movement technique or whatever it may be to put a little bit more of the quote proof in the pudding, if you will. 
Yeah, and, and the way I was explained with the difference between VA and pen testing, you can you know confirm that this is correct, is basically a VA is just a scan to see what vulnerabilities are out there, but the actual pen test is to actually see if they're they're real world active in the sense of you know you see a port that's open when you're doing a vulnerability scan, but is it really open and is it really vulnerable that you can actually get access to it and gain access through the pen test? So that's kind of the way I was explaining the, kind of the difference is you got to report a, a vulnerability assessment that you run some sort of scan, whatever that means, whatever tool you're using, and it gives you a report and tells you what's potentially open, but the pen test is actually to show that you can actually breach that and get access. Yeah, absolutely. And to add even more, because what you, you, I mean, the VA, the vulnerability assessment, you're not going to be firing off the traditional sort of exploits. Now, frankly, we don't see the traditional exploits uh, in quantity like we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but with your VA, you're not going to be firing those. You're going to say, look, this looks like it is. We have a specific confidence level that this is indeed vulnerable. Whereas with pen testing, you're going to fire those exploits. Of course, you know, we're going to do it in a controlled fashion. If there's a chance the system might go offline, we'll do it during a maintenance window or talk to the people. The other big difference with the, uh, the VA versus pen test is a vulnerability assessment is going to look kind of at the surface, right? We get the scanner is touching a lot of systems and a lot of ports and a lot of services, but it's not looking necessarily beneath that, right? With a pen test, you get access to a system and now maybe we find passwords.txt in the desktop. Cool. Now we use that to get access to the next system and that gives me authentication, authenticated access and now we see a configuration issue that maybe your vulnerability scanner doesn't identify. Um, so we, we put these pieces together. I, I sort of jokingly refer to the, uh, the, that sort of pen test where you do exploitation, but you don't do anything. We, we kind of jokingly refer to that as the RCPT, the really crappy pen test. Okay. Because all you're doing is getting a vulnerability assessment with some additional sort of checks. It's like a validated pen test. And frankly, those are crap. Okay. Right, because if you're paying somebody, you may as well pay somebody to put the pieces together as well, instead of just kind of find the pieces. Right. If right. I can use A, B, and C together, and pivot to get into System D, perfect. That's what I want to see. I don't want to just have a a vulnerability assessment where we do quote unquote exploitation, but really it's just a crappy VA. And as, unfortunately, we see a lot of that where. Uh, the kind of the industry term is the pen test puppy mills where you crank them out as fast as you can. Um, don't do some of those extra sort of, you know, checks, right? You get access to the system. What can you do next? That pivot is important. If your pen testers are not pivoting, meaning getting access to one system and using that system to access another, frankly, fire them and just get a VA because <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> right. And I think one of the things that I want to, you know, establish here and, and people that are coming up in the, in the pen testing world is you have to have that engagement first. You have to have that contract. You have to have the scope of, of your pen test before you just jump in and start doing a penetration test. You need to have that because if you don't, they might have critical systems. They might have, you know, systems that might be a little bit on the iffy side. If you do too much or throw too much traffic, it could take it down and it could be a critical system. So, like you're saying, you do the engagement, right? And do the scope and, and see exactly what needs to be pen test. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, kind of going more into that, that scope and the agreement. I mean, frankly, the only difference between the good guys and the bad guys, it's not intent. It is solely permission, right? Right. It, it's, I mean, the computer fraud and abuse act says unauthorized access to a computer system. The key there is that unauthorized, right? And of course, once you get into the test, 
you try to be as careful as you can because you don't want to intentionally take down systems. Invariably, it'll happen to everybody. Something goes offline, something goes down. I mean, these systems crash on their own, right? And sometimes it's like, did I do it? Did the system crash on its own? Was it somebody else? It's, it's hard to trace that back. Now, that's extremely rare, um, but you know, things crash on their own, right? And, and you can't guarantee a hundred percent chance of it staying up because you frankly can't guarantee a hundred percent chance of when, when you're just running your network, right? Servers just randomly go offline because they feel like it. Who knows, right? Oh, for sure. And anything can happen, right? You, you never know. And that's the, and I just want to put that caveat because I know there's some guys that have, you know, they're, they're excited. They're eager. They, oh, you know, I can go pen test this company. You know, there's bounties and things like that. You know, we, we, you can talk about a little bit is that, people go and do these bounties and thinking that, you know, they can just go do them, but there's actually, you know, these policies, procedures, there's these scopes that you need to look at before you even do that. And there's, you know, this criteria that you have to either, you know, watch out and requirements you have to meet. So pen testing is not just, you learn how to compromise a system and go. There's a lot more deeper kind of professionalism behind it. Like you said, you know, then you're actually a hacker breaking down in a system versus actually being someone that's helping the company. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on any, on all of that. Absolutely. Right. So let's talk about that in the, in the sense of when pen testing, you know, one of the things that people ask me about is kind of, you know, the different areas, you know, there's white, there's white hat pen testers and there's gray hat and there's black hat. Like, what does that really mean? Yeah. I mean, the difference between the black and the white is, is pretty straightforward, right? I mean, so it, it, they, the terms come from the old um, like Westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, black and white Westerns, you didn't have a lot of colors and the bad guy always wore the black hat and the good guy always wore the white hat because, you know, that's just what they did. Right. And that's where those terms come from. The white hats, the good guy, the black hats, the bad guy. Okay. The gray hat. I mean, that's where it sort of, you get a little bit of both. And of course there's kind of a spectrum in there of, of the gray where, I mean, I know plenty of people who are on the, uh, the, 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 the good side who cut their chops doing things that were less than legal. Right. Or, I mean, we see it all the time where we've got some of the good guys and they'll keep, keep up their skills or practice by doing things that are a little bit, or a lot of it, frankly, illegal. Right. And, there's a, and then there's a whole sort of series in the middle where you sort of, there's this whole ethical discussion, like, hey, is this actually legal or not? And, you know, even if it isn't, is it the right thing to do, right? I mean, it comes down to the permission thing. So it gets into this long sort of discussion once you get into the gray. Um, but, you know, the, the key here is if you want to stay above board, and, and frankly, I like staying out of jail and I don't like lawsuits. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> always, get that, always get that permission, right? Yeah. Um, it's really easy. If you want to practice on your own, set up your own lab. You can get free copies of Windows legitimately. Download Windows 10, the eval mode. Um, you tons of different versions of Linux. There's a lot of free software out there with known vulnerabilities that you can play with and research. Right. Uh, so you don't have to go do anything sort of uh, illegal. Right. And I think one of the things that I was uh, advised, there's a lot of sites out there that you can go to as well, where they have, you know, you can do capture the flag and you can kind of do all these different tests, right? And you can, you can build up your strength and you can do all that in a controlled environment. And then, like you said, you can get like, uh, some sort of like VMware or anything on the line and set up your own little mini network in your own environment and then go nuts, right? And you're and not 
you know, violate anything because you're doing testing internally for your education, your knowledge. You're not compromising the actual company, but you're doing this locally. And if it's an application or if it's an operating system, you can do that for, you know, testing purposes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a pl- plenty of them, the free ones out there. I mean, there's uh, um, like I th- off, top, off the top of my head, there's there's hack in the box. I mean, it, it's relatively cheap. Um, there's sans net wars. It's going to be a little bit pricier, but the nice thing is it gives you kind of an enterprise environment. Um, there's tons of blog write-ups. There's a lot of free CTFs that people uh, um, write. Um, there's write-ups on those CTFs. If you go to something like ctftime.org, you can mm-hmm. find those CTFs. You can also see how other people solve some of those challenges and figure it out yourself or maybe kind of walk through or try it yourself. And then when you're stuck, go through the walkthrough. So there's a lot of resources out there for you to learn, of course, to stay on the, uh, the, the stay above board, if you will. Right. Now, in the area of, of pen testing, there's so many different facets to it. I mean, you know, breaching servers, network, like you talked about, mobile devices, websites, applications, programs, I mean, Internet of Things devices. Is there one area you would say, would you say focus on everything and try to learn everything? Or you'd say focus on one area and become an expert in that area? Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's the question I get all the time. People ask like, hey, which one should I do? And my, my sort of snippy but super truthful and I guess semi-deeper <laughs> response is pick the one that you like, right? right? There's no reason for you to get into web pen testing if you don't like it because you're going to hate it. You're going to regret that decision and you're going to switch to something else anyway. Find the piece that you like. If you're interested in the web, cool. There's lots of free resources out there for web. Uh, network pen testing, you're going to have to build a decent-sized lab and play with. Uh, what you sort of, at least in my experience and experience with some of the people that I know, is once you get good at one area, it'll sort of naturally bleed into work in another. So okay. you'll, you'll start doing the net, the, the let's say, network pen testing, and you're going to see some web applications, and you're going to start maybe developing your skills in that area. And some of the same concepts are going to apply there. And then once you have maybe the web, then you start looking at mobile. Well, the mobile, most mobile applications are just crappy browsers. So it's just web with a different front end. Right. Right. And you just move from the next to the next. And once you get, let's say, good at, you know, the network pen testing, you get a Linux machines and you learn a lot about Linux. Cool. A lot of IoT devices are built on Linux. Now you can jump into some of the, the IoT type of hacking. So it'll sort of, I don't know, the skill set will sort of develop itself for you kind of if you, if you stay interested and stay engaged and stay on top of it. Um, but frankly, the short answer is just pick the piece you're interested in. Now, wouldn't it help also, again, pick the piece that you have a little bit of knowledge and background in and an interest? For example, like you, I'll use web, you know, the web. If you're interested in HTML, CSS, you know, PHP, Java, you have an interest, you've been working with them for a little bit, you know, if you wanted to go into penetration testing, it'd be better to go into that first and then build your skill sets versus trying to go into something completely different like network security, right? And pen test that if you have no network security knowledge. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it, it's, I find the, the, some of the best, you know, pen testers are former network admins or, or the best, best, you know, web testers are former developers because they have all of the concepts, they've got a lot of those fundamentals and they're just taking those fundamentals and they're flipping them on their head, right? Like right. they know how to configure the thing so they know how to break it and they know what's wrong, how, how to, how, what not to do 
because maybe they've done it before or maybe they have a background on that documentation or that product or the tool or the software or whatever it might be. So if you've got that, you know, leverage the crap out of it. Um, I had a friend of mine who used to do a bunch of um, mainframe type work. And he's turned that into uh, security consulting and he is doing really well, <laughs> right. but he, he's got that fundamentals and it's not, that's not a skill set where I'm going to be like, you know what, um, let me go out and learn mainframes because I don't want to hack it. I, I'm, I'm not just not going to develop that skill set without, you know, completely changing my career because I just don't have access to that. Now that's right. a little bit more specific, but it could, could apply very similarly maybe to, to hardware hacking as well. For sure. I mean, and that was the, uh kind of the point I think I want to hit across is that when people are asking and listening to this podcast, it's like, where do I need to go or where should I go? It's one of those things, like you said, go into an area that you're interested in, go something, go into an area that you have a little bit of knowledge and experience in, and then start working from there. And especially when we're talking about pen testing, right? In this area. And I think it, it helps to have that because like you said, if you've configured it, you kind of know where the vulnerabilities are. You know where the the admin files and everything's stored. You know where the configuration files and this is stored. Like I know for websites, for me, you know where the user files are stored. You know where, you know, potentially you can get the, into the back end through different, you know, open doors and things like that. You know where, you know, there's a potential vulnerability. It's because you set it up. You set up, you configure, you understand that. So same thing with networks, as you know, there's certain ports that some people just don't configure by, you know, because it's not, you know, closed by default. So those are probably the ports, you know, you first check, right? I know a colleague of mine, when he was doing pen testing, he did SQL Server setups and configurations in uh, Active Directory. And he said a lot of times you would just try to, you know, uh, penetration, to, uh, pen, uh, break into the SQL Server and he just try to min and min because that was the default password for SQL when it was installed. And sure enough, like, you know, a good percentage of the time he would be able to just to get in because they never reset it. Yep. So like I said, like it's things like that, like you're talking about, which I totally agree. And, you know, people listening to this, I want you to kind of think about that as you're going through your pen testing, you know, journey and you, you're interested in that. Here's some kind of good tips. Yeah. Well, and to, to, to sort of add to, to, to that as well, um, you know, a lot of people that, that don't have the experience in pen testing, offense, hacking, red team, whatever you want to call the, the flavor of the day there, um, you know, it's, it's not like it is on TV, right? It's not Tom Cruise and the beautiful woman in that building. And he, and he, you know, takes it out to the fat guy in the van and I'm the fat guy in the van. Right. And he gets it in a, in, you know, a minute or two and sends it back. It's a lot of reading through documentation. It's a lot of learning about these tools and it's not flashy. Like I've had friends like, Hey, can I come watch you hack? And I'm like, you will be bored out of your mind. Right. Like I'll have some music on the background. I'm going to have like three screens open. I'm going to flip it back and forth. And I'm going to have Microsoft Word open because I'm writing a report at the same time. And they're like, oh, really? I'm like, well, what, what do you think is actually happening? It's not, it's not like a movie. Another thing too, if you're getting into to, uh, pen testing is this is a line of work that's kind of unique um, in that there's a lot of failure. I mean, the whole goal is we are trying a lot of different things to see what ultimately works. And a lot of those things won't work. Um, and I, I sort of joke, but it's mostly just true. I'm not that good of a hacker. I just know how to fail fast. Right. So I can try a lot of the things really quickly. 
and then get to the things that are going to cause the success. And then, of course, you want to develop your skill set so you know more things that you could possibly try to get to those successes. Uh, but it, it's very true in our industry, the su- uh, success and failure are not opposites. They are, the, they are the same thing. You've got to have those failures to get to the successes. And if you're not able to tolerate those failures, this is not the line of work for you, right? Like, I mean, so the let's doctor- talk about that. Let's talk about that actually. Like, you know, you're talking about failures, you know, you know, give me some examples of those failures because I think like you said, so many people think it's like you type in this code, you run this script and all of a sudden you're in, you're into the network, you know, and then you, you've got the, the gold, you know, the root password because you just did this one code. But that's like you said, that's not reality. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, a, 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 a target might have hundreds, thousands of systems online and only a couple might give you access. And you're going to have to poke around maybe on all of those to finally figure that out, mm-hmm. right? You're going to go to this web, one website and you have no idea what's going to get you access. Uh, a few years ago, we did at an event, we did like a hacking IOT night. Okay. And what we did is we went to Amazon and spent a few hundred dollars, bought some devices and brought them in and told people to, to just start hacking them. Okay. And we'd explain people on some of the basic concepts. And frankly, we had no idea because they were brand new devices that we had never seen before. And then at the end of the night, we had a bunch of people come up to us like, well, what were the answers? Like, well, I, I don't know. You don't know. Right? Like, we, we, no, we haven't done this before. It's brand new. It's like, oh, well, I want the answers. Like, well, what did you try? Well, nothing because I didn't know what was going to work. Like, well, that, that, that doesn't work in this industry. Right. You have to try and you're going to fail a lot. Right. right? How many different passwords are you going to try to get into that admin admin system when the password isn't admin, right? right? Is it some sort of crappy password that you just happen to not try? Or is it a good password that you're never going to guess, right? right? And you don't know, right? And, and it's going to happen over and over and over again. Right. And I think that's a good explanation because I, like to give people the idea that cybersecurity is not an easy field. Penetration is not an easy you know, career to be in. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of training and education and ongoing on the fly research. And then it's long, long hours, like in the sense that, like you said, and I, I've worked with some guys that are pen testers and they spend maybe a 10, 12 hours on one thing, just trying to breach it. All these different scenarios, all these different tries, you know, all different ways and different scripts and different access points. And they're just trying to potentially, hopefully they can get in. And that's one, like in, you know, look in the analogy of the capture the flag, that's one flag. But now yeah. they have to go into the next level and then the next level and the next level. You know, like these guys would, you know, leave files uh, behind just to show that they've been able to get access to certain areas, just to show as then when they write the reports and then, you know, work with the clients to be able to say, look, we got, we breached this, this access point. We got in here, we got in here, we got to the file server and we left one of our files there. Here's an image file that we left just to show that we were able to get all the way through this security. But that took like three, four days of engagement. It wasn't yep. just something like you see in the movies where, you know, like you said, with Tom Cruise, all of a sudden they're into the, the main server. They're in there and it's like, you know, 30 seconds to a minute they're in. You know, these guys are spending days just to get into this one, one point. And then next days and then, you know, like you said, then writing a report, taking screen captures, doing all that to show what exactly they did. So that happens when they go back to the client. Here's what you need to fix. 
Yeah, and, and to add to that too, I mean, oftentimes you have multiple people working on this together. So it's right. even more like, I know so much. And then uh, fortunately, I work with some people who are smarter than me, but like Mike and Corey, for example, um, they know different things that I don't know. And we share, and we bounce those ideas off of each other. And then we sort of use it like a ratchet, right? Like get a little bit of pressure, put a little bit more pressure. And then eventually, ideally, from our perspective, of course, something uh, we, we get in uh, and we can go from there. Now, I, I sort of say that and I kind of hate to do that because I flinch when I say it. Um, and I don't use the word win from our perspective, at least in, in a forum like this. We use it sort of internally. Um, but the, the goal here is, is I mean, well, it is ultimately for us to get in, in a way, uh, the goal is ident to identify the vulnerabilities that could have an impact to our clients before the bad guys do. Right. Right. And our goal to, to sort of help do that is to get in as far as we can. And, but I don't want to say there's a win because it means that the other team is sort of lost, right? We're in this together and, and it's unfortunate because there's so many places where they look at the red and the blue team, the offense and the defense as adversaries. Right. But realistically, we're on the same side. We're both working against the real bad guys who are going to steal your data, ransomware you, whatever it might be. Right. We're not adversaries. We shouldn't be fighting. We should be working together as collaboratively as possible. So let's talk about that and you bring that up. Isn't that where now the purple team engagement came up? Right? Because you did have the red team and you had the blue team and, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say, I don't, I don't even know when purple team came out the kind of the analogy of that workflow, but you had that for quite some time where there's a blue team would set something up and the red team would try to compromise it and you kind of go back and forth. But over the last, what was it, a year, two years, now there's this purple team engagement, which from my understanding, and I love to hear your insight, is now more live engagement with the pen testers and the blue team to figure things out on the fly. Yeah. So, and that's, that's, it's actually a beautiful evolution. I think it's kind of a logical evolution um, so kind of going back a little bit, I mean, we used to have uh, a lot of just pen tests where you get in and you, you sort of shred the company, if you will, and then leave, drop off the port report on your way out and maybe have a phone call. Kind of a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And then the right. blue team gets it. And, and we were, you know, I, frankly, I was at one point, I think I matured out of it relatively quickly. But, you know, you get in, it's exciting. And, you, and I wasn't going to, I mean, I didn't rub it in anybody's faces. Right. But that was sort of the attitude on the, the, uh, the pen testers was we're kind of going to rub it in your face a little bit. And that's, that's not constructive, right? Cause right. if we look at it, the red and the blue, the offense and the defense are ultimately trying to make the defenses better. So we keep the real bad guys out. Right. And so we'd see, you know, these fantastic reports, someone lobs it over to the other side and that's it. And the blue team is just sort of left like, okay, cool. <coughs> now what? And that sort of naturally evolved into the purple team where we'll have the, the, the two sides, that offense and the defense, sit down together. And it could be as collaborative. It's okay, I'm going to launch this right now. Can you see it? Right. right? Can you see it? Uh, do you have automation surrounding that to, to escalate that properly? And do you have coverage uh, throughout your organization? And if you've got that, the big, the big focus traditionally has been around uh, prevention. Right. We, we know now, of course, prevention is not 100%. Um, 
we've got to have some focus on detection, right? There will be bypasses to whatever tech, defensive technologies you have. There will be O days. There will be some way that a bad guy is going to get in and you have to be able to detect the bad guy and get them the heck out of your organization. Ideally as quickly as possible. Now you uh, we've mentioned, seen things, go ahead. You mentioned O days. You mentioned O days. So what is that? Yeah. So the, the zero day is, is, the number of days since the exploit has come out, it, we, we, we use that as a term for there's no patch for it yet. Mm-hmm. And we kind of use that term too for, you know, a, a new bug where the patches maybe aren't widespread yet either. Okay. Um, but it's, hey, we have no defense in place for this, this yet. No, no, no patch for Windows or Linux or whatever the heck it might be. And the bad guys can sort of rip to the network. So we need that defense in depth so that, if our first line, our patching fails, we have other ways to either stop or detect the bad guy inside of our network. Now, let's talk about patch management. Again, being on a pen, a pen testing and kind of the red team and looking at that, are you finding that there's a challenge with companies from when a, you know, vulnerabilities out there, you know, you're getting the manufacturers now writing patches to it, but when they get to, the patches get deployed, is there this gap? Is this, this you know, three week, six months, whatever gap, that now they're still vulnerable, even though that the fix is out there, but there's still this window that there's a gap in companies going through change management, deploying the patches to make sure they're up to the newest, greatest kind of, you know, patch and security patch that there should be out there. Are you finding there's a challenge? This is Yeah, a challenge? and there's... And there's multiple pieces to that, right? Like, so the patch comes out, it just frankly takes time to deploy it. And we've right. been in, um, you know, in situations where new bug comes out and we're on site that week and we, of course, use it, right? And we show, hey, look, we need the defense in depth in order to prevent this kind of an issue. Right. Other times, you know, it's been, um, you know, weeks, months, maybe years later where, it, you know, you're kind of in that window where some of the stuff should have been patched. Um, but there's oftentimes systems where you're like, you know what, this one is too critical. We cannot patch this system. Right. Or it's a vendor product that happens to use Windows or Linux or whatever it might be, and we can't patch it without going out of support. Or commonly, unfortunately, is they've got don't have the proper asset management and they don't know the system exists, which means of course it gets no patches and there is no visibility, there is no monitoring. So you can use that as a beachhead inside the organization. So that's, that's a whole giant thing. I mean, if you look at the critical controls, your hardware and software inventory, if I remember correctly, are like one and two on the, the critical controls. Mm-hmm. You have to know what software and hardware is in your network so that you can keep up to date with it, right? For and sure. The software piece is even worse than that because there's layers. Mm-hmm. So I might have you know, this, this Linux server, on this Linux server, I'm running Apache. On Apache, I'm running PHP. Within PHP, I'm loading additional modules. And it means, frankly, all of that, right? right? It's not as simple as just Linux. It's not as simple as just the web server. There's multiple tiers here. I mean, it could even be the CMS that's built on top of PHP as well, right? And, and there's different plugins inside of that. So the, this, it sort of turtles all the way down and getting a good software inventory I can oftentimes be be deceptively difficult. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of tools out there. If you, and people that are listening, there's a lot of tools out there that can help you and assist you to do that inventory. But like you said, this is a huge issue is that asset management and patch management 
to make sure that you're up to date because I heard on the other side of the fence that, you know, like hackers, they love this is because what happens is they don't have to do the research. It's literally out there. This is a vulnerability. And if you'd use this, this, you know, these three steps or this way, you can get into these systems and there's a, they know there's a window, right? There's a window where they can compromise a company, you know, because they potentially have run that. Maybe they've done some reconnaissance. They understand the company's running one of these servers or, you know, applications. And sure enough, they know that vulnerability is there and they have a small, a window that they can get in using that, you know, that, you know, compromise because they know it's out there. And it's kind of one of those things where it's, I think it's, it's a hard thing for the blue team because, like you said, there's so many, you know, policies, procedures, change management, you know, yeah. testing, everything they have to go through where hackers don't have to do that. It's literally, hey, there's an open hole. I can get in. Go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and one of the sort of um, big ones that we, we like to bring up, not, not to throw anybody under the bus, um, but like the Equifax breach, there right. was uh, a vulnerability with a, with, uh, a software tool, a package called Apache Struts. Right. And the vulnerability was released uh, earlier in the year. They were compromised um, months later and the detection was even was um, made even months after that. And the hard part is, is you can't exactly just do a regular old scan for that. It's not like trying to find the Linux systems in your environment. Right. This is going to be compiled into your custom Java and you have to be able to look at that differently to properly identify. So, I mean, the, the getting, excuse me, getting the vulnerability management program right and, and getting that software inventory is kind of difficult. So now one of the things I watched was a documentary on Ashley Madison, right? And that, and that breach where they actually had a report from someone in the Philippines that, you know, did a test, found the vulnerability gave them a test, like the actual report saying, hey, you know what, you're vulnerably here. And it took some time for them to even action because they didn't think it was a big deal. Ah, don't worry about it. And then eventually that was one of the, the bigger breaches at that time. I think it was you know, back in 2015. And a lot of people got compromised because a lot of celebrities and politicians and professionals were using that site. But what happened was, is that they, they had a vulnerability and they knew about it. Right? And they knew, you know, that there was a potential and it's no different from, you know, zero days and things like that. And when the patch comes out in the security, they know about it. It's now up to the company now, in my opinion, is to take the, the process to be able to implement that. And if they don't, then there's negligence there if they let it go too long. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's always so tough because you're going to have it at some organizations at some point there's going to be systems and things that you can't patch or you have to defer and defining that risk is incredibly difficult, right? right. And getting that right. And it, it's, it's a little bit easier to play the arm court, armchair quarterback. Um, there's a lot of these where you're like, oh, that, that frankly, that was just stupid. Um, but it, it can be hard. I mean, the simple math is like, what's the likelihood of the impact? Multiply that times the impact, the potential right. impact. Now that's easy to say, but, how do you define likelihood of impact? And that, that's, everyone's going to have a little bit of a different um, sort of idea there. But at some point, I've seen some organizations where, you know, the head of one BU, one business unit is patching like crazy. And right. another business unit, they're just, just signing the box for accept the risk and accept the risk and accept the risk. Right. And, you know, I think maybe, and I've seen some organizations where, frankly, and I hate to say it, but maybe they're patching too much. 
right. uh, or, or spending too much on security. And people are probably going to you know, be furious at that. But I mean, it comes down to we should only spend so much on security because the security doesn't make the business work, right? right. It's a cost center. Um, and getting that cost right is hard. Now, what the, the bigger point there is there's a lot of organizations that spend minimal. And that's, I think, the, the, the significantly greater risk isn't overspending, it's underspending and exposing yourself, your clients, your brand. I mean, we've seen multiple times where companies have been breached and, you know, that, that brand hit is, is incredibly painful, right? right? We're seeing the um, fines associated with that just flying through the roof. Now, of course, we've seen plenty of times where it has had hardly any impact. We've seen some major retailers get breached. Um, especially that big uh, before the big fines, where their stock price took a dip for a little bit and came right back, and right. it wasn't actually too bad for them. But I think right now, like when you're talking about, you know, and here, I, I kind of sit on the, on the fence that you got to look at in this, the sense when people are spending money on cybersecurity, or can you spend too much? I think the challenge comes down is you don't know the impact bef- during the actual breach or after, which you brought up. Because I was having a conversation today and we were talking about, you know, your brand and potential loss of revenue after the fact for retailers, you know, people that have customers. Now the trust is gone, right? The trust to shop with that company to be able to procure anything from them because you don't trust that if you're shopping online, which a lot of companies now are going towards, you know, you have to put your credit card information, you do that. Are you going to get compromised because you put your information in? So now people stop shopping with that, you know, company X, Right, and stop buying products because they don't trust that, that they're going to secure their information. And that dip could be a week, could be a month, could be even a quarter. We don't know that impact, but you know the amount of money they can lose in that time, not just from the breach alone, but the aftermath of that. And I think that's where we don't know how much money you should spend on security for that impact because you don't know the effects after. Some people, like you said, could be minimal. You know, it's a minimal impact after a short, you know, span and they're back up and going and everything. And then the trust is back there and people are, or it could be ones where it, people don't trust them for a quite some time. And the company has to now do a PR campaign to show that they've done their due diligence, their security. Now they're more secure. They put position uh, technology in place to make sure that everything's secure. Now you can trust them. So I think it's kind of a, one of those things that when it comes to like us in security is, it's kind of a fine line of looking at, you know, transference and, you know, or even delegating out that, yeah, it's not that bad right now. The impact, what's the likelihood or chance that that's going to be compromised? Right. Yeah. It, 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 I completely agree with you. I mean, it, that, and that that's sort of leading in that, that my previous comments leading into the discussion that you're talking about. I mean, it, it comes up down to ultimately budgeting, right? Can you get the budgeting to, to pull it off? And, and, right. I think two, there's many more organizations who are underfunded in security than those who are overfunded. Right. Right. And there's sort of statistics and I don't remember them off the top of my head on the average spending in security and the suggested spending rate for security. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we still see in this day and age, even now, you know, in 2020, we've had pen testing and security around for a while and we get some and they're relatively new to the entire concept. Whereas we've got others who we sort of refer to them as apex defenders who are doing things right. I mean, they're making our life hard and they're making us cry, which is great, right? Because that's ultimately the goal. And there's things that even then you can learn. Um, one, of my, one of my colleagues, Mike, wrote a blog post um, 
the, I forget, something about the benefits of getting your teeth kicked in. Right. Um, okay. There's still, we don't, we don't have to have that quote unquote traditional win. There are still interesting ways to quote unquote win without getting that sort of full domain compromise. There's always going to be some sort of leak or something like that. Um, I think in the, that, or in that blog post, for example, we couldn't, we had a horrible time trying to pivot, um, could get on other systems, but it was a financial institution and there were um, essentially checks all over the place, just in the file shares which means banks, accounts, and routing numbers. Wow. And other financial information. It, was, it, it wasn't everything that was sensitive to them, but as a bad guy, I mean, how many big accounts do you actually need access to to, right. to, to have a good life, right? I mean, we've got these multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar companies. I would be perfectly happy with a couple of million dollars on an island. Right, <laughs> right? <laughs> true. So now let's kind of talk about like, the gap here, like, you know, we're talking about like cybersecurity, we're talking about like, you know, people setting up, you know, budgets and things like that. But is there, are you seeing a gap in the industry? Like we all hear about, you know, there's a shortage of IT professionals, IT security professionals, and there's a shortage of, you know, people that are, have the expertise. Are you seeing that as you're going your day to day and working with, you know, these different companies? The hard part is there, there is definitely a shortage of like the senior level people. Okay. Um, I mean, and I think, you know, that you're probably going to have that in a lot of industries, frankly, right? The hard part is training those sort of junior people up to get them into that senior position. I don't have a great answer for mm-hmm. that. Um, but I know a lot of the, 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 the you know, line of work I'm in is, you know, the pen test side. I know a lot of companies are trying to find good people and it's, it's hard. And we're frankly snap, snatching them up as fast as we can, even before we necessarily need them because there aren't a ton of those senior level people. Right. There are a good number of the junior and some of the mid-level people out there, but getting that is hard. And a lot of organizations aren't ready to, I mean, we're a small company. I, I get this point. I can't necessarily take a junior person and, grow them into that senior person. I hope we will grow right. to that point where we can do that. Uh, but we just simply sort of can't. So right. long story short is, yes, I think there is a sort of skill shortage for some of those top, top people. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was talking to a recruiter today, uh, just kind of following up on just the industry and what's going on. And they're saying it's kind of across the board from junior level positions. And I mean, junior in the sense of one to two years experience, not someone that, Hey, I'm, in, in this other career and now I want to be in cybersecurity, but people that have at least, you know, at least two years of experience up to like you said, senior level people, wow, just exactly. because what they're saying is that there's two areas of, of challenges for them is one, finding those good people. And then second is retaining them in these companies because they get the experience, they get the knowledge and they move on to the next opportunity. Either uh, one or two areas is one, they want the challenge because it's new information, new technologies, be it along that line. Or two, it's the money, right? The company can't pay for their education, can't pay the salary that they're you know, potentially worth at that time because they've got good skill set. And now they move on to the next company, which pays a little bit more. And they just keep moving up and moving to different positions and moving on. So yeah, it's, and I, it's funny because I've read some articles um, about that. Like, how do you retain? Because I, I work with some super smart people and I definitely want to keep, keep them. Right, because that's a thing. It means you get those big pay increases. Most people, excuse me, have to take a have to have to go someplace else. Right, and then the irony is, when you then backfill the position, you end up oftentimes bumping up the pay anyhow. So it's like, well, why not just 
keep the person you have. And it takes a while for that person to get up to speed and get used to the policies and the procedures and the culture. Right. Um, yeah. I don't have a great answer for that, but that is absolutely true. And then of course there's a, the piece with the, the training, you know, training's expensive and people don't want to spend on the training, but that's a, that's a nice perk. And of course there's that age old saying, saying, Hey, um, you know, what happens if we train them and they leave? And of course the exactly. counterpoint is what happens if we don't train them and they stay. Right. right. I mean, it, it's, it, you've just got to look at it as, as, as or the, or the other side is this, but where the, other, the other side is sorry for uh, cutting you off there, but the other side is what if you don't train them and they leave, right? Right. They leave to another company that does do training. Like I've heard, right. come, you know, you're in this new company and they're great and they don't do training. So you get your one, two experience and you jump to another company, which is a bigger company now. And they do have in, in-house training. So now you kind of have the best of both worlds, right? So you can't, as a man, as a manager, it's a really hard position to be in, right? Because like you said, you don't want to, you know, spend that money, yep. your budget on getting someone up to speed, getting the policies, procedures, making sure they understand the environment, you know, get them, you know, the education that they need. And then they leave now and then you have to reinvest in the next person, right? So it's a, it's a hard position to be. And that's why I was, I was asking about the shortage because I think the one thing that my grandparents, you know, ran into is you, you get a job and you stick with it for life. If you get like a postal job or a government job, or, you know, you work for the, you know, the big companies that you, that's it. You start when you're young and then you go yep. and you retire. And I think we've kind of, you know, in a whole, I think we've kind of lost that, that value as employees, but also the companies are having a hard time to do that as well. So I think this is kind of this balance that we have to figure out because it's, you know, I know a lot of great companies that, you know, want to retain good people. They have good, you know, practices, good employment. They rank really high when it comes to employer and the employment and, and their, their other staff. But when it's IT, specifically security, they just can't retain them for some, and they said for some reason. And it's just, and from what I'm hearing is it's just because these guys go there, get the training, get the, the experience, and then move on to whatever that next thing is. If it's, you know, if they focus on network, then the next thing they jump is cloud. And then the next thing they're jumping is something, you know, internet of things is because the guys are just interested in all these different things. They want to try all these things and they have the ability to do that. So I think right. that's one thing that as IT security professionals, we kind of have to look at ourselves is, you know, where do we want to be? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Now I have a question for you. Like, since you've been in the industry for 10 years, what, and, you know, all your experience, what challenges are you seeing? Like in 2020, start of the new year, what challenge are you seeing in the, the cybersecurity industry? So I think um, a, a couple pieces. I mean, I think we're finally sort of learning that a purple or purplish approach is, is the right way to go. I mean, and, and you're probably like, well, duh, Tim. Because <laughs> uh, there's, there's just so much. And, and what's funny is I still, I hear people ask about the purple team but then when you say that, hey, let's do this, they don't actually sort of want it. They like some of the terms. Okay. So I've had organizations say, hey, we want to do a purple team. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean to you? Because it's, a, it's sort of a newish term in our industry. So people end up misusing it a little bit, right? Like everyone understands vulnerability management, vulnerability assessment, because that's, it's been around for a long time. And people hear people say like, we want a pen test, but can we have a meeting afterwards? I'm like, well, I wouldn't call that purple, um, but if, if that's what you need, that, that's okay, right? But right. we need to, to close that feedback loop. 
Um, and I think the additional focus on some of the detection capabilities of defenders instead of just preventative measures is one of those key pieces. Right. I think another piece too is the internal pen test, I think is a little bit outdated in the way that we currently do it. So what we okay. see oftentimes is you throw a Linux box on the network and you start you know, trying to break into, into systems. That's not the way the bad guys are getting in. They are not coming into your facility, plugging in a laptop and hacking the systems. Realistically, the way they're getting in is with a fish. The vast majority. I mean, I asked my forensics and IR people that I know, like, hey, what's what's the math on this? Or like, it's it's fishing. Well, okay, so what's let's the percentage? Talk about like, that. It's fishing, no question. Yeah. So, so fishing. What are what what's fishing, and kind of what are some scenarios of fishing? Yeah. So there's multiple different ways to to fish, right? The ultimate goal here is to social engineer to convince um, some end user to take some sort of action that compromises their system. Um, it, it traditionally is either clicking on a link or opening a document that has a, a file format that causes the, the, the program to run the arbitrary code, to run the code of the attacker so they can get remote access. Uh, we see other phishing techniques where we're asking the user for credentials and then using those credentials to maybe log into a VPN or uh, some sort of website that, that's publicly available uh, and then use that. But with that, sort of the, going back to that internal pen test, the bad guy isn't jumping on the network and then looking around for a bunch of sort of open services. It used to be like, you know, a decade ago, we would see something like MS 08067. It's a big vulnerability from 2008 that was just all over the network. And you would just do a memory corruption type vulnerability uh, exploit, take over a whole pile of systems. Okay. But that's not the way that the bad guys are getting in. And frankly, we're patching quicker and we're firewalling off. So even, even if those vulnerabilities exist, it's far less common. Okay. And I think the assumed breach where you start with access on a system and begin your pen test from there is a better uh, representation of what's happening in the real world. Okay. Uh, it's also sort of a, a, a more efficient way to do a red team. So the red team versus the pen test, pen test, you know, week or two, we're going to be loud. We don't necessarily care about being super quiet on the network. Whereas red team, you're going to be testing the defenders. I sort of simplify it, maybe overly simplified, that a pen test tests the technology where the, the and, and, sorry, the that pen test tests, tests the defenses, whereas a red team tests the defenders. Um, and the assumed breach sort of allows us to skip that initial fish. Hey, I send this in, did somebody click on it and accelerate that a little bit. And we can start the pen test from, you know, on someone's system with some sort of credential. Okay. And the reason why I brought up phishing is, you know, people ask, you know, about compromises and, you know, you hear and you read that, you know, still a high percentage of compromises come from social engineering attacking actual people, not the systems, not the technology, but compromising people and you know i want to really kind of emphasize that it could be anyone right your administrative person to your executive like anywhere across the board you know they can be compromised and i remember uh i did a a, a talk at one uh company and the next day they got ransomware because one person thought 
you know what? That wasn't something that was interesting. I didn't really kind of get anything from it. And they clicked on a link to a website because there was a sale. And sure enough, it was there was a script in the background. It ran and it went through the whole network. And I think it's important as, you know, talking to yourself is for people that are watching that, if you're not an IT professional, if you're not, you know, cybersecurity, and this is kind of something you do day in and day out, if you're just the general person, you got to keep, you know, aware of what you're clicking on and, and, you know, doing back to practice because someone like yourself, if you send, you know, some sort of templated email or something through as a, you know, even a pen test you're doing, potentially that, that can get them access, you access to their network. So, and that's something that's safe. You're doing in a safe environment, but if it's a hacker, I mean, you don't know they're in and they could be in for a day, a month, a year doing reconnaissance, surfing around. So, you know, when you're talking about that as being one of the challenges, something I want to kind of emphasize because even people watching this, I've seen, and I don't know if you, I've seen IT security professionals get compromised by a phishing attack, right? There's a conference that comes yep. up, they've been sent that and all of a sudden they click on it, just not knowing they're so busy, they're working in 10 different things and they click on it and sure enough, you know, the script starts running in the background. And I think, I think one of the things that we, we've done poorly in security is, uh, we shame those users, right? right. You, you hit on this. <laughs> They're trying to do their job. They're right. trying to get their job done. That They just want to get their job done. They're trying to be efficient with it. And, you know, if one person makes the wrong decision, the whole company is, is taking over, that's a whole different flaw, right? And, and I think the problem from the security side is we push it onto them. If I say that the users are dumb, they're going to click on stuff, Cool. I've done nothing to fix the problem. Right. If I say, hey, someone's going to click on something, now what can I do? Now I'm taking control and I can make choices. I can make decisions to minimize the impact. Yes, someone at some point will click on something. Let's assume that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Now what? Can I detect it when they get in if, and can I stop them and kick them out if they get in? Right. And we've got to have that. We can't just say, oh, well, the users are dumb and just sort of close our eyes and put our head in the sand we have to have some sort of uh, defensive depth to say, look, if this does happen, it doesn't take the whole company down with it. Right. You know, like, and you're talking about like some sort of end, endpoint protection and some, some that can eliminate that machine or that node, you know, immediately if it's doing something that shouldn't be, it can shut down that node right up, right away. So things like that. And again, yep. companies are looking at, there are tools out there that can do that. It's just, you know, doing the research, working professionals like yourself, right. To, you know, educate on what's out there to be able to implement, you know, proper security or even different things to pre prevent. Now, going forward with your, your other challenges, do you, did you have any others other than kind of the, you know, end user, the challenges with, you know, phishing, anything along that line? I think that, I think that piece, I think, I think to, to go back to it, I think the, the model for internal pen test needs to change. Right. I think, cause I think we're focusing on the wrong thing. And I hate to say it cause some people are going to sort of crucify me for it, but I think we're <laughs> focusing too much on some of those, those internal patches. I'm not saying they're not important, but that's not how the first person is getting in, right? right. You're not getting in because, um, you know, some, you know, server in the middle of your network doesn't have the uh, a specific patch for RDP, right? That will be a, maybe a later point, but you've got to be able to detect some of that lateral movement. And we've got to be able to focus on some of that detection capability so that when that fish happens, not if, when that happens, 
we can stop and kick the bad guys out. I mean, the, we, we see time and time again from things like the Verizon breach report where the bad guys are in for months before mm-hmm. we detect. And frankly, oftentimes it's not the organization itself that identifies the detection. It might be a uh, credit reporting service that says, hey, you lose a bunch of credit cards, you're breached, and now they have to figure it out. Right. Or somebody else finds the breach for them. That's always sort of a, a, a sad statistic. Right. But we've got to focus much more on d- detection and work our pen tests to, to, to focus on that more as well. Well, I think you now you got tools like uh, Dark Trace and Vector, which are doing network detection response. And from my understanding, a lot better job because it's more uh, machine learning and AI technology. So it's learning your network and learning the traffic, learning what's going on. So when there does become an alert or something that's irregular on your network, it starts to do that. Because I remember uh, one company that I, I was talking to, uh, they had a pen test done and their SIM didn't alert of the actual, you know, traffic and things that were going on, but they were supposed to. And it was all that the filters and everything they had set on that SIM weren't set properly. So yep. all the tools were alerting and alarming, but the SIM wasn't picking it up. So nothing was showing through. So well, totally- that was, that was the, the big one there was the target breach. They had all of the alerts. They just, somebody got tired of them and turned them off. So they, they missed it. But that, I mean, to go back to your point, that is so tremendously key. You've got to have that baseline. You have to know what your network looks like and should look like so that you know when things are different. Because so, how are you going to detect something going bad in your network if you don't know what good looks like? Right. Right. I was just listening to an episode of uh, Darknet Diaries. There's a guy, I, I'm near, I live near Dallas. Uh, Tinker um, runs our, the DHA over there. And on his, pot, on his episode, he was talking about he got busted because he was using PowerShell on a, on a finance computer. Okay. And they caught him, not because of anything he did. It's just finance doesn't use PowerShell. They had no, they had no um, fingerprint on his tools. They didn't detect his command and control. They just said, look, this is PowerShell. Something's wrong. Okay. And I'm like, that's a great technique. And it's a simple one, right? Like right. if PowerShell is run by anyone but IT, we have a problem. Like right. just automatically, simple detection and things like that. And, and are they 100%? No. The goal is to make it harder, have enough layers so that the bad guy has to take more time or we have enough traps in place or, or that we can identify them more quickly. Right. I agree. I mean, I, I remember working at the Ontario government and they were talking about a scenario where a guy actually had a server underneath his desk and he was turning it on at, I think around seven o'clock at night and, and, and turning it back off at, you know, when he got back in the office around like seven thirty, eight o'clock. And they were wondering why there was so much network traffic at night. Right. And eventually over time <laughs> and distance, they found out that he was running like this pornography site from underneath his desk. And this guy was making money and doing, you know, cash transactions. Well, what happened was he was using the, the government network to be able to host his server. So, and like, wow. and this was years and years ago, but like you said, now, you know, more companies are using these tools to detect network traffic, to detect applications, detect, you know, images and making sure, you know, the company's image is exactly if it's the finance department, if it's the HR department, they have certain applications and that's the only application they have. And the admins have to install their different applications and they run a scan on that. If something else is not there or is there, it shouldn't be, you know, yep. now there's alerts. So 
all these great things are now being put in place more and more. And I think, like you said, defense in depth is now helping when companies are doing more of this. Absolutely. Yep. Totally agree. Now, what do you do like as a pen tester for yourself? I mean, with 10 years experience, how do you keep up to date with what's going on in the industry, you know, different kind of breaches and things that you want to use, you know, compromises that you're looking at as you're testing with, with companies. How do you keep up to date? Yeah. I mean, it used to be that Twitter was fantastic for kind of bubbling some of that up. It's sort of, I hate to say it, become kind of a, I don't know, wine fest a little bit. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, things like Reddit are pretty good because they'll bubble up there. Um, you know, there's a few key people that have good signal to noise ratio on, on Twitter and some of the other, those other platforms. Okay. Social media has helped kind of to, to propagate some of that. And unfortunately too, the nice thing is um, I've got some smart people I work with. We kind of bounce ideas off of each other. And I frankly know enough other people uh, as well where you start to see these discussions, you know, it's sort of a micro social network, if you will, where, hey, have you seen this? What are you looking at over here? I think one of the most valuable things you can get is sort of develop some of that. The, the okay. you know, it's not what I know, it's who I know. I, the, the friends I have, especially collectively, are infinitely smarter than I am. So if I can develop some of those friendships, I mean, go to local conferences, hang out with people there, you know, they, those people have the same sorts of passions as you share ideas, ask questions. I mean, I'm sort of honored when people ask me questions about some of the tools that I've written because I'm like, Oh, cool. You're actually using this. Right. And you would sort of be surprised that many people are really happy to talk about things that they love to do and things that they've done well, because someone's interested, right? right. They don't, they don't go home and talk to their kids. Like, here's what I did at work today. It's like, dad, can you turn on a cartoon? Right. <laughs> True. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's good. I mean, now what about like meetup groups and different capture the flags and things like that? Would you recommend those as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I used to do a whole bunch of CTFs. Now I just, I don't have the, the time to do those as much as I would like. Um, I'm fortunate for, I'm kind of close to Dallas. So I have to, it's a little bit of a drive, but I go over there. There's some great meetups in this area. Um, there's probably some all over the place. There's, you know, B-sides, there's like a million of those things. Right. Uh, go, I know hate talking to people, talk to some of those people, see what they're interested in, see what they're working on. There's different villages. Uh, there's also some Slack channels. If you're a little bit less interested in, in you know, poking your head into real people, um, like there's the, the bloodhound Slack, you can lurk there for a little bit. There's plenty of other ones there where you can get some of that and you'll see kind of the, the pulse of some of the sharp people. Um, or the pulse when, hey, multiple people are chatting, chatting about this technology, this vulnerability, this defense, whatever it might be. Now, one thing I, I wanted to ask you, the soft side of being in IT and being cybersecurity, do you think that's something people need to work on? Absolutely. I mean, we've had, I mean, you're always writing reports. I mean, it, the level of detail and the, the extensiveness of the report is drastically different, right? Your average person working inside an organization probably writes fewer reports than, than we have to because we're consultants. We have to deliver a report that's literally the deliverable. So you've got that, that writing. It never hurts to, you know, be nice to people and understand that, that human interaction. Um, you know, talking to people about, Hey, can you explain this to me? You know, you don't want to come up and smell bad and be a jerk and, and <laughs> <laughs> those soft skills. I would also encourage people 
um, get out and give talks. One of the great things, um, Austin, I think was the first with AHA. Then I can't remember which was next. If I think it was Dallas and then um, Houston. So DHA or DAHA and then Houston, HAHA. Anyways, what they have is they've got events where you go to these things and they're all run a little bit differently. The nuances don't necessarily matter, but you get up and you talk about what you're working on for about five minutes. Okay. And you say, Hey, this is the thing. This is the cool thing I'm working on. And it could be super cutting edge or it could be, Hey, I'm brand new to industry. I am just learning about how hashing works. And that's awesome because there will be someone at your skill level um, or someone who doesn't know what you know, because you guaranteed have skills that I don't have. And I would like to think I have skills and, and, tech, and, and expertise that you don't have. And we can both learn from each other. And so many people are scared of going to these things and talking because they're like, well, I don't have anything interesting to say. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. Talk about what you're seeing in your organization. Take an existing tool or te- technique and put your spin on it. Um, there's plenty of, of, of big names in our industry who literally blog themselves into becoming sort of famous, frankly, using techniques that were already published. Uh, because, and, and, I'm not, and I don't say it just to, to disparage that, it's because they put their spin on it. They put themselves out there and said, look, I am learning. Here's how I'm learning. And people identify with that. And that's tremendously valuable. So you do have something to share, whether it be a talk, a blog, whatever, put it out there and put your spin on it. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And one thing I would like to add to that is um, learn how to communicate verbally with people. Because like you said, cybersecurity people are always in meetings. They're talking to senior level people. You're talking to other IT people. It's kind of like that 360 you know, degree. You know, you're talking to people that are employees to upper management, senior management. So being able to articulate yourself very clear and concise really helps to kind of give you that edge. And I know uh, talking to hiring managers in different companies, they say it's kind of a unicorn to find someone that's very technical, you know, understands, you know, the cybersecurity, you know, the technical aspects of it, but also can communicate in an easy to understand way. Yep. So having that soft skill to be able to develop that is very important too, because it's just such an asset because some people just don't understand like it's way over their head. And sometimes you need to bring it down to something they can get, something they can grasp. Yeah, completely. And I've, I've, I thought I was good at that, but I keep learning how I wasn't good at that. And I continue to try to get better at it. I mean, I, I teach a lot with, with sand and I explain something and I learn like, Hey, here's a simpler way to explain it. I developed that skill set, and you, you learn how to do that. I mean, there's so many times when security will work, I mean, we're trying to convince someone to take an action from the maybe blue team perspective that is going to make our company more secure. And if you can't communicate that idea and cause them to take the action, I mean, frankly, what's the point, right? right. You're wasting your breath. And I look at that with our reports. We have a big, huge focus on our reports on not only being a useful report, but frankly, I want to be beautiful too. And it sounds stupid, but, you know, you go to a restaurant, you can get the same cut of meat at two different restaurants, but one's got a nice plate and the ambiance, you perceive it as having more value. Right. And if you can deliver the same data in a more presentable way, it will be perceived as having more value. Even if it's going to be the same exact information, that presentation is super important. 
And if you can develop that skill set, it was tremendously valuable, which means you can make more money, right? <laughs> so true. And it's a good point. You know, one of the things that I always remember is when you're working with clients and talking to them is always checking into them, always check in, you know, did you have any questions about what I just mentioned? Or do you have any questions about that? To make sure they're not just kind of the deer in the headlights, you know, just staring at you going, what? I don't understand. And same with reports is being having in bite size, you know, you know, flow that, you know, there's the overview, they understand what they're getting. Right? And then it goes into the meat of the actual kind of the report. And then, you know, kind of a closing of this is what you just got. Here's just a reminder of some of the actions. Again, it's just to get them in that flow of thinking. Cause you know, sometimes when you're dealing with that person across the table, they've got 20 things on their mind and you just added, you know, five more things and it, they just can't, you know, grasp it at that moment. But if you yep. put it in a consumable way, easy for them to understand, easy for them to, you know, assimilate it, then it makes it so much easier for them to take action versus, well, uh, and and, it, go ahead. It, it, just, just to add to that, it kind of goes to a throwback of a conversation we had as well. Um, I was at an event and there was a number of people discussing how do you get the business unit to apply the patches? Because this, this, this gentleman was on the um, vulnerability management team. He can identify the vulnerabilities, but he's not the one to patch it because it's, it's not his systems, right? And it's separation of duties. I mean, it's, it's frankly the right way to do it. Right. Um, but he, one of the, one, uh, somebody else, uh, a woman there said, what we do is we give them three. We say, if you can patch these th three things in the next month, this will have the greatest impact on your risk. And they're like, cool, three, I got that. Whereas if you give them this giant list, like, I don't know what to do. I've got 300 things on here. Where do I start? Let's look at it next month, which means nothing happens. Right. So they give up. Is it perfect? Of course it's not. But you're picking the three big ones and you're knocking those down. And eventually you're knocking enough of those top tier, those top three ones down that you start getting into some of the, the, the lower criticality and, and you're, you're going to, you know, move that needle. Yeah, no, for sure. Totally agree with that. And that's kind of that bite side approach because so many people, and I mean, the, talk about the, you know, just the people being busy and the burnout and people, you know, and stress leaves and things like that. Just people are overworked and there's so much they're working on to give them more tasks when it comes to security, you're coming in. You, you, I mean, and here's the exciting thing is that you're, you're a penetration tester. You do that. You've got all this great information. You want to prime great value and you want to download all this on them and they can't consume it. They can't take it in. So like you said, yeah. giving bite sized you know, chunks and you know, I know some pedestrian, I don't know if your, your, your team and your company does this, but sometimes they do follow-ups and then, you know, you did the pen test, we'll follow up in 90 days, we'll follow up in six months, whatever that may be, just to see if you have any questions, anything along that line, is because a lot of times they know the company's overwhelmed when they do that, and it's now such a shock that they need to give them a little bit of time to consume the information and then follow up. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that we do, I, I got this idea from, I forget who it was, one of my friends, but like in our uh, re reports, you know, you got the finding, you've got, you know, what the impact is. Um, but give we, we also give them a way to validate the issue themselves okay. so it, what, it, what it allows us to, allows them to do is you know take these findings and then um you know check themselves so they apply the patch they apply the mitigation whatever it might be and they can say okay is this thing still vulnerable and they can take this piece of code they can try these number of steps to test it themselves 
so that they don't have to necessarily come back. Because oftentimes you're going to deliver the report. It's going to go to one person on the security team. And that person is going to chop it up and hand it out to multiple different engineers who are going to take care of that problem. And then they would maybe have to come back to us. And frankly, retest for pen tests are boring. They're right. horribly boring, right? Because <laughs> you're, you're just checking these couple of different points to say, hey, do these things still work? Yes or no. And when it, you know, it's still vulnerable, you're like, oh, crap. Now I got to test it again, right? right. Or, um, but if you can say, hey, look, here's how you can validate yourself. You hand it off to the engineer. The engineer attempts to make a fix. They can immediately test it. And if it doesn't work, iterate. And right. immediately while they're on, while their brain is switched on that, while they've got the context, they can immediately keep working on that. And then, you know, when it's done, it's, it's, it's done. And right. also we don't have this window where, you know, you chuck the report over the fence, somebody gets to, does the patch and we have to wait till everybody gets patches before you call somebody for the retest. And in the right. meantime, maybe some things are fixed and maybe some things aren't. It allows it to retest, to, to allows them to essentially do the retest themselves and make things, you know, much, much more efficient. Right. And I, and I mean, doing retest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the one, the one thing that, you know, to add on to that, which I've heard is that then you've got like, you know, you got to schedule change management windows. You got to change, you know, if you're doing a second test, there's change management or windows yep. that are for the testing. And, you, and that could be, you know, you're scheduled for six months, but it could be nine months, even 12 months up because now, there's a critical project that needs to be done before they can do the pen test, right? And you have to wait for that done. Now that could be another 90 days, right? Until you can do that. So, no, I completely understand. Like there's so many different variables after that one test that, you know, yep. pen testers have to run uh, work with. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I've had somebody tell me, it's like, well, you're, you know, you could resell a pen test, a retest. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to. And frankly, it makes their life easier. Like I've had clients who's like, Hey, do you want to do a retest? I'm like, let me tell you a little thing here so that we don't have to. And they're like, oh, cool. We won't, we won't buy a retest then. I'm like, all right, good. Because, I mean, I like money, but I hate retests. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the other thing on, on the top is that uh, some people might not know is that certain companies, depending on their industry, have to do it for compliance, right? They have to have a vulnerability in a pen test, you know, maybe annually for right. compliance for their, uh, you know, industry for it, say, for example, it's financial or health, any, or anything along that line, uh, maybe it's industrial, they have to have pen tests done. And some, you know, companies have to have it by different companies. Right? It can't be the same company each time it has to be a different company because they have to validate their security as well as the, you know, for their insurance too. right? Their insurance has to say, look, they've done these steps in this fiscal right. year to make sure they're secure. So some that, that you know, people that are listening to this, you just understand that, you know, there's all different facets that a pen testing team has to understand when it comes to it because it could be, you know, you might be retesting with a company because of compliance reasons. It might not just because of vulnerabilities or compromises. It might be because, you know, they need a certification saying they've got a pen test done. Yeah, and we, we see, I mean, the, the certification, I think, by and large, has moved things forward. But we still see a lot of organizations who just want that checkbox. Right. Um, we had like a, we had a, a phone call with somebody a couple months ago and it was like, okay, my, my first question is always what data or process if lost, stolen, compromised would cause the biggest pain to your organization? Cause I want to know like, cause that literally frames the rest of the discussion, right? Cause the goal of the pen test 
is to model the real world bad guy. And the real world bad guy is going to be after information that's important to them and information that's important to you. Because those are, you know, usually very tightly linked. Okay. And the guy, now, what, question, what, what about financial? What about financial uh, profit for them? Like it might not be valuable for the, for the company, but it might be profitable for the actual hacker. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know a case where if they lost that, that it wouldn't either have financial impact, either by fines or like a direct impact. Okay. Because I was thinking you like, know, say, I mean, say user information, right? It might not be financially, you know, it might not be the companies like, I'll say a social network, right? It's not a big thing if they lost the people's information, address, phone number, things like that. But well, then on the, in that on the case web, it would be a it'd be a but, brand a, a brand impact and the breach notification. I mean that's a different kind of pain, right? Right. Yeah. So it, whatever it might be, I want to understand some of the basics, and because because yeah. I can guess what's important to them, right? Like you know credit card numbers. That's easy, but I don't want to guess and be wrong. I hate being wrong, so I would add rather and I usually preface the question with that, like look, I. I asked this question because I hate being wrong and I would rather ask you than be wrong. And I don't want to assume, so what data, blah, 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 like credit cards. Okay, cool, done, right? Because there was one test where we had that where if I would have assumed, I would have been completely wrong and I would have missed the keys to the kingdom along the way. It's kind of a long story, so I'll skip right. it. But um, essentially it was, like, if, well, I'll go into it briefly. It was like a, like a Amazon type thing, but for um, tools. Okay. And I asked like, Hey, what's important to you? Um, and because I'm thinking, you know, customer information, billing information, all those things they are like, it's, it's actually the price at which we sell things. Uh-huh. Like, what, what? It's on the internet, man. And they told me like, oh, no, if, if a competitor were able to get our pricing information, they would just sell everything for a penny less and we'd be out of business. And wow. I talked through some of the defenses there, but because of that, I never want to assume what the, the, the big impact is. Cause I don't want to be wrong. So anyways, right. I asked this guy up front because I, it helps me frame the entire conversation around what's important here is your organization and your business. It's not me getting to domain admin because that domain, that privileged access is a tool. It's not a destination. And I always want to sort of recenter myself, but also understand. And this guy said, it doesn't matter. I'm like, well, I mean, it does. He's like, it's just, it's just a pen test. I'm like, I mean, yeah, but, but kind of not. I mean, we need to understand what's important to you so that we can frame the vulnerabilities in that context. Anyways, he kept going on and on. It's like, all pen tests are the same. It doesn't matter. I'm like, well, you know, we're kind of a boutique vendor. We kind of do the, the more high end type stuff. Um, he's like, I, I don't care. I, I, like, I don't, I don't want the Porsche. I want the Yugo. And I'm like, all right. If we are not priced in that area and uh, you have a nice day, if you have any questions, please call us back. We essentially fired that guy because he just wanted the checkbox. That's right. all I cared about was checking that box for compliance reasons, not because it actually mattered. And right. It, it, I mean, it's kind of sad. And they're hiring somebody, you know, super cheap to come in with, with whatever vulnerability scanning tool and then call that a pen test. It's not a dig on a tool because it's just somebody using it wrong, right? And the request from the company not understanding. Yeah. Right? Because then th- let's talk about the, that just kind of briefly. If they got breached and they kind of presented a vulnerability scan and the insurance company audited them and said, well, did you actually you know, validate that these are compromised and all that? 
they could be basically hung out to dry. Their claim could be refused. Right? And I've, I, I know that because I work with insurance companies and watch, watch them refuse claims. Yeah, but they, they, I mean, they get a crappy, I mean, there's that RCPT that I talked about before Mm -hmm. where they, you know, it's a pen test in air quotes, but it's realistically, it's just a vulnerability scan where they may or may not do some additional validation, but they call the pen test anyway. So on the piece of paper, that box is checked and, but yeah, I mean, it's, it gets, does get squirrely, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a waste of time at that point. Right. And that's what I'm, I agree with you. And that's what I'm saying. If anyone's listening to that and thinking that, okay, yeah, that's, that's a way to get that check mark. Be very careful because if you're transferring the liability to insurance, that your insurance that you're paying $100,000, if not more to, you know, your cybersecurity insurance, they might not cover that if you get a breach or ransomware because you didn't do your due diligence. And a lot of times they have a checklist that you have to go right. through things that you need to do for your security, uh, you know, um, posture. And if you're not doing that and also you make a claim saying, hey, look, we got ransomware, you know, we need to make a claim to recover and do all these different things. They might come back and say, nope, sorry, you didn't do your due diligence, right? And your due care yep. that we, we expected and we, that's what you signed up this policy. So just make sure like, you know, you're working with someone like Tim that understands and give you advice on what you need as a proper test. Yeah. Awesome. Now I have one last question for you. Now, sure. If you were going to go oh, back, you're rubbing yeah. your hands together. What kind of question is this? I'm I excited about this of excitement. It is. It is. <laughs> I'm really excited about this one because I get a lot of new people asking me. You know, you know, what should I do? Or what what mistakes that I've I, have I learned being in the industry? And you know, you being in ten years, if you could say go back to your younger self ten years ago, what would you recommend? What are some tips you'd give yourself? You know, your ten year younger person. Would it be different education, different strategies? Yeah, no, mine would be, and it, it's something I hit on earlier. And I, I, it was actually, I was fortunate enough, John Strand is, John Strand is a dear friend of mine. Um, and I, he, he, he had this conversation with me. Like I, I wanted to give presentations. It was just something I wanted to do. I wanted to do talks. And I was, I, I didn't want to give the talks because they weren't, I don't know, cutting edge enough. And, and John came to me and he's like, look, there are tons of people here at this event that are trying to learn the basics. In fact, look around here. How many people percentage wise do you think are, you know, the absolute wizard versus someone who's just trying to learn? I was like, I don't know, maybe 99 to hundred. He's like, yeah. So which, which talk do you need to give? The one that goes talks to this one dude or the one that talks to everybody else. I was right. like, oh, well, that makes sense. So it, it helped me sort of understand, like, look, I have some knowledge that other people don't have. And I remember giving that first talk, I'm like, oh, man, this is, this is way too low level. And then people come to me afterwards like, oh, thank you. I didn't know anything about this. And I was like, people actually got something from this. And the other fear sort of associated with that is, I had a fear that that one sort of wizard was going to come up and be like, you knucklehead, I can't believe this, this is so stupid. That doesn't happen. All right. Like I've had some of the, the, the nicest people in the industry when I was first starting out with some of that come up to me and say, hey, nice talk. And I was like, I, I know this dude knows all about it because I referenced his, his, his material <laughs> or, her, her, or her material in my talk. And they're happy about it. So, you know, the people who need it, they're happy. And frankly, if they don't need it, they won't come to your talk. Right. And 
that there no no one else is going to come up to you and talk bad about it. In fact, frankly, if they do, screw them. They're a waste of space. But right. get out there and put yourself out there, whether it be that local conference, blogs, whatever it might be. Uh, my the, my favorite thing to point to is uh, Peter Van Eckhout, Conan Coder. Uh, he has a, a series of blog posts on writing exploits for Windows. And it was literally, at least from my, under, my understanding, it was him learning. And he just put the blog post on how to do these things. And they weren't new to him. It was just his process. And he actually now has turned that into, you know, successful consulting practice and su- successful training just by explaining what he was learning. Wow. And, and when you explain something to someone else, whether it be a blog or the presentation, you learn it better yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, so my, my, I would implore you to get out there and put yourself out there, go to your local con, give a talk. If you're scared of giving talks, I'll be honest with you, your first talk as the presentation perspective is going to suck because everybody's <laughs> does. Right. That's the matter of fact, get over that. And the next one's going to suck less and the next one's going to suck less. And eventually you're going to be good at it. Right. But just go out there knowing people need that information and your first presentation, you're not going to be Tony Robbins on stage. Right. You're going to get better at that presentation and people need it. And I think one thing to add to that, which I, t- I totally agree, get out there. If, if public speaking is a fear of yours, I mean, if it truly is one of those, you know, top five fears that, you know, public speaking, you'd rather run naked into a shopping mall than go public speaking, then find another medium. Like, you know, if you write articles, if you, you know, if you want to do even just audio where, you know, it's podcasts, like whatever that medium is, find that medium that you're comfortable and just get out there and do it. Because I totally agree with you, Tim. It's about getting out there. It's about practicing your craft. And I think what happens is you learn by doing it because you do the research. You want to write better articles. You want to do that. And you evolve as you're doing it and you, you polish that, that skill. And also now it's like, Oh my God. And then like, not even the, just the soft skill, but the technical skill, because as you're learning and you're testing it and you're trying to see if it works, you learn it. And now you write about it. So you're, you're really engaging that, you know, memory and the recall of it. So it's just a great way to learn information too. So talks, presentations, if you write articles, if you do audio, you do YouTube, whatever that may be, just get out there. Yeah. And, and everyone is nervous the first time. I mean, if you're not awesome. My first talk, I was walking to the car to drive away. So I wouldn't have to do it. Not even <laughs> kidding. Like I was going to leave. Um, one of my first talks, it was supposed to be a 60 minute talk. I talked so fast. I finished it in 17 minutes. Like I, I, I wow. couldn't slow down. I knew I was talking fast. I couldn't stop myself. Right. Okay? And I don't tell you that to, 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 to scare you. Look, my first talks didn't necessarily go well. I learned from that. And now I'm super comfortable jumping up in front of a large room. And I am so thrilled that I, 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 I did that. And it was a, such a rewarding experience. And again, if that's not your medium, cool. But you're probably going to have some sort of worry if it's blogging or whatever. Put yourself out there. Who cares? Turn the comments off. Don't read. Never read the comments. Everyone's always told me never read the comments. Right. Uh, but just put yourself out there. And I think that is, is that right for the trash bin. I think that was one I, I learned. Do things for the trash bin, like whatever that may be. 
you know, you, and just go look, you know, I'm going to go and fail miserably. I'm going to fail, you know, amazingly to yeah. this talk or this blog, uh, podcast or this, you know, blog or whatever. I mean, it's going to be terrible. That's great. I'm just going to have fun doing it. And it only matters for me. And then do 10 of those and do 50 of those. And all of a sudden you'll realize after the first, you know, 10 or 15, you'll start improving because you want to make it a little bit better for you. And yep. it is just for you. And then after your first, you know, 20 or 30, you start to get it. Then you start kind of going, oh, I actually, I like doing this and I enjoy that. And then you'll start to improve. Like you said, with talks and presentations, you get there. And once you kind of get there, you get the nerves out. I know when I started doing talks and presentations, even being on TV, uh, Rogers TV here, you know, you got three cameras there. You got a producer there. You got, you know, the camera guy staring. You got the mic person with the boom mic on you. And you got your mic on you and you're sitting going, oh my God, like what am I? And then all of a sudden they go and the red light goes on. And you're like, oh, what do we do? What do I say? Yeah. And they go, so I'm introducing Brandon. You're like, who's Brandon? <laughs> who's he? <laughs> <laughs> When's he coming in? They're like, it's you. And you're like, oh. Yeah. And then you got to talk, right? And you're just like, deer in the headlights, you're doing that. But like you said, you get kind of comfortable. You get in the flow and you start doing it. And then now it becomes second nature. You don't really worry about the cameras. You don't really worry about the audience. You just kind of do your thing, right? And you enjoy it. So. I totally agree with you, Tim. It's just about getting out there and just doing it and doing it for yourself. Yep. And for me personally, it gives me an incentive to do the additional research. I learn so much beyond just, the, just developing my own presentation skills. It gives me a reason to, to learn and then I can share. And I always put my, I, I try to put my spin on it because if you're in the audience, I want to see why it matters to you. Because if, it, if I can see that it matters to you, your passion comes through. And that makes it interesting, right? Put your spin on it. Tell your story, mm -hmm. right? It just, yeah. No, I agree. And uh, practice. I mean, one of the things that uh, I was part of um, Toastmasters and, and, and different groups like that where they teach you how to speak was one is practice your, your speech, practice your writing, do that. Like if you're going to do a talk, practice it, like time yourselves and then we actually relive it, like stand up, get up there, time yourself, do all that, get yourself in that scenario and that physical act action. And then what happens is like you, you did, like, for example, I've done that myself where you time yourself for 60 minutes and then all of a sudden it ends up being, you know, half an hour, 20 minutes. And I did that myself because you just go and you expect breaks and pauses, but you don't break and you don't pause and it just cuts down the time. So now you have a Q and a that's 30 minutes long, right? Cause you're actually slotted for 60 minutes. So you're sitting there kind of going, okay, does anyone else have any questions? I know the worst one for me was when I did that, no one had any questions. So like, what do I do? Do I add more? Yeah, but thing? I mean, so for, if it's a conference talk, I don't think anyone's ever offended if you let them go early. Oh right? no. <laughs> but if you're but like, if you add extra fluff for the sake of adding the fluff, people will murder you. So I mean, <laughs> exactly. don't, don't, don't be too afraid about, yeah, not having enough necessarily content, but, and frankly, you might go too fast. I did. It was, it was, it was not great, but you also learn how you fail. Like, right. and, and if, find people around you that can tell you when you fail and how you fail. Like I was, it was doing like a murder board with like, once again, John Strand. And he's like, look, I just broke you. I'm like, what? He's like, I know the material. It's like, yes, you absolutely know that material. In fact, I had no idea what you're talking about because you know where more about it than I do but you started talking faster and faster and faster and you lost all of us. And I'm like, and now I know how I break. Right. Like, I don't know how to stop that. Bring some water with you on stage. Take 
that water and drink it. I saw uh, there was um, and there was the comedy show this summer with like Jeff Foxworthy and a few other people. Okay, and he had a great quote that he was talking about, you know, specifically comedy. But he said, if you think you're going too slow, go slower. Yeah. And I find myself, I'm a fast talker, but it gives people more time to digest those pauses. Just make yourself slow down and be aware and go for those pauses, give people time and sort of develop that skill. If you ever have to read, and I don't know if you've ever done this, if you've ever had to read a teleprompter and get somebody to teach you to do it, it seems like you're talking so slow. I've, I've never done it. So I, one of the things I had to do, I had to do for Rogers TV, they had actually had a teleprompter you had to read from. So okay. I actually had to go through training of how to read a teleprompter correctly and learning different words I cannot say on TV. So for example, businesses I can't say on TV because the S is slur. I have to say companies. So and anytime I say that, because the audio picks up, it picks up. And it's you specifically. It's not. It just, it's, yeah, just me. So you have to learn that. So as you're reading, you read and they'll go, no, you can't say that. We have to change that word. It has to be companies now. And you can't say this. You can't that. And you have to take a pause. And you see them all do it. And when you read it, it's like, it, like you said, it feels so slow. And you have to pronunciate. So today, we're going to talk about companies. And you're like. Oh my God, this is so slow. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. But it's this slow pace yeah. and you, how you emphasize your words so it picks up clear on the audio. So then you learn that when you're doing talks and presentations that you slow down, you emphasize things. So today we're going to talk about compromises, right? You yep. change your tone, right? And you get people more engaged. And I think, you know, the one reason why I'm adding this to, to people that are doing public speaking is because you get people engaged when you change your tone and you change your speed. Right. As soon as you can do that, you actually get people kind of going in there like the cliffhangers. So today we're going to talk about compromises. And people are like, okay, compromise, let's go, let's go, let's go, because their mind's going so fast. Yep. We're going to talk about this type of breach. And it's really exciting that we're going to talk about this breach. And you hear people like Tony Robbins and all that. They do it constantly where they'll go quiet and soft and, and whisper. Yep. And they'll go really loud. And then and you're kind of like you feel at the end of the you know, his presentation, you're all jazzed, but it's again how they're delivering it. Yep. Yeah, so, I find myself, it's funny, um, I find myself watching presenters present oftentimes more than their words sometimes. Like if I find a topic to be less interesting, uh, assuming you're like a, a seasoned presenter, I'm like, I just watch their mannerisms and how they talk and the pauses and, and exactly like you said, tones. Yeah. Um, but now I'm going to pick up on that companies versus businesses because <laughs> that's a word I have a problem with too. So that's funny. So yeah, it was just one of those things that they got me to re write out my script and then they got me to read it and then listen back. And I was like, and they were saying like, as they were doing it, they're like, at, through the script, they're Xing things out. And I'm like, oh wow, I can't believe I'm saying that. And so now me doing podcasts and working with people, I pick up things like that as well because you're so now, you're looking for it, you're listening for these words that you shouldn't be saying. And you listen if other people say them and say them, if they say them correctly. You know, or, or do they slur as well? So it's kind of, it's kind of fun. But when you learn that, you become very clear in your, your, your grammar you, and your, how you're delivering things. And, and then to add to that too, if you slow, when you slow down, it gives you more time to get ahead of yourself mm -hmm. so that you don't get into, like I have a, if I go too fast, I double think myself and I'll try to change up my sentence halfway through 
or I'll like stutter on a word. And right. it helps with my delivery on multiple layers because I can get ahead of myself and I can use the right words and say those words that I can say and not the words that I can't say kind of a thing. Right. But, and, and frankly, it's, it's more interesting too, right? Take it nice and easy and you'll, you'll be fine in the presentation. And I think one, ad, one kind of thing I want to add on to that is that just remember for professional speakers, practice their speech and do it 10 to 20 to 30 different times in different venues until they polish it up. You, you see comedians do that. And I know I was watching Kevin Hart's um, Netflix special, but he did it in different comedy clubs before he did his net Netflix special and he kept adjusting it and making it yep. kind of, okay, I got to fix that. Okay. That didn't kind of hit. And same thing when we're doing our kind of our talks and presentations, same thing as you're kind of working on polishing that up, do that one talk like 20 different times and 20 different events and venues and all that. You don't need to switch it up each time. You don't need to be fresh in the sense of new topic each time. You can have that one topic and speak about it at 10 different venues, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you're going to have different audiences at each. I know a lot of people who think that once I give a talk, once it's done. No, no, no. You're going to have different people at those different events. And the overlap is going to be minimal. And frankly, if they've seen yours, they probably won't go again. Or even better, they saw it and they're like, I want to hear that again because right. I need it. Right? So don't, be, don't hesitate to do it, do it again. Do it multiple times. Yeah, because it'll just help you to polish because if you, if you know the material the more you can work on other aspects of the delivery, you know, your timing, your speed yep. and everything else. Cause now, you know, the material, you know, it hits. Okay. But how do I change it? How do I make it better for myself? You know, I found I was a little fast cause you're going to critique yourself and then you right. all of a sudden now, you know, become better. So awesome. uh, listening to yourself is so painful. <laughs> listening to your own audio. Everybody hates it. It's awful, but do it. I learned, I learned when I did it, I do it every, like once a year now. I learned, I said, um, a lot. Okay. And I learned, worked really, really hard. And then somehow years later, I picked up saying right at the end of every sentence. And right. <laughs> Just said it now. There you go. <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Was there anything else you wanted to add? No. Thank you again for, for, uh, for having me. If you've got questions, feel free to drop me an email, tim at redsiege.com or hit me up on Twitter with a name you probably can't spell. So just send me an email. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and check out his website as well. Uh, I'm just going to say it here. It is redsiege.com. Uh, redsiege yeah. Check it out. Uh, if you guys have any questions about uh, having your company do like a pen test or anything along that line, uh, send them a message. Uh, Tim's really good on the sense of like what you heard in this podcast of educating you on what you need and then going through the process well and then delivery. So Tim, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Appreciate it. Thank you for again for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It. Now guys, I just want to just add one more thing. Don't forget uh, again to follow Tim on his social sites. Uh, again, a lot of great information. So you can actually see some YouTube videos too of, of Tim doing interviews and other podcasts. And uh, just make sure you subscribe to the Daily Cyber because there's, again, a lot of great interviews with like people like Tim uh, and experts in the field about cybersecurity and what's going on. And I just want to finish off this podcast saying, don't forget, software is hackable, being connected vulnerable. I'll see you next daily podcast.